Hey, good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. Grab your Bibles. Go with me to Luke chapter 12. I want to say uh, welcome to those of you who are watching in the loft. Thank you for your flexibility, church, uh, as we uh, are temporarily uh, worshiping here in the student ministry building and then next door in the loft while we are renovating our worship center as a part of our Proclaim initiative. And things are progressing beautifully. I can't wait for us to move back into that space and along with all the renovations that are being done in our children's uh, ministry space. It's going to be a great fall for us here at the North Campus of Prestonwood. Uh, two brief announcements before I begin our time in God's Word. The first is today is Mission Dignity Emphasis Sunday. If you're unfamiliar with the ministry of Mission Dignity, it's a part of our uh, partnership with Guidestone Resources, which is the uh, financial services arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, serving pastors and churches and entities of our great convention. And uh, Mission Dignity provides ministry resourcing, financial resourcing for individuals that have given their life uh, to serve God in the ministry and might not have uh, been able to properly prepare uh, for their retirement years. And because often there is a shortfall between what is needed and what is had, uh, then Mission Dignity steps in and helps to cover the gap. And so if you feel led uh, to partner with us as a part of the Mission Dignity emphasis and the ministry to help serve pastors and their widows uh, in their twilight years of life and ministry, uh, then there's information at the table there in the atrium when we're dismissed. Also, ladies would want you to know that July kicks off women's Bible studies for the summer here at Prestonwood, and the ladies of our church are studying the book of Esther. And so if you would like to get connected uh, in women's Bible study this summer, then there is an information table in the atrium uh, for you as well. Now, you'll know last Sunday we started a brand new summer sermon series entitled The Parables of Jesus, and last Sunday's first parable was the parable of the lost sheep, and my hope is that you got to see a glimpse into the heart of God uh, to seek and save the lost, that the Bible says Jesus would leave the 99 sheep and he would pursue the one who is uh, gone astray. And I hope that was an encouragement uh, for you, but also a motivator for you to want to be about the business of our Father and to be about the business of seeking and saving those who are far from Him. You know, one of the takeaways from last Sunday was the statement that found people find people. And so I hope that as it relates to your lost family and friends, uh, you have been busy in seeking so that God might also find them. And today, our parable is the parable of the rich fool. And uh, we're going to uh, study today the idea of idolatry or the problem that Jesus is going to address as it relates to the sin of uh, greed. And here's the fair warning before we uh, open up and, and dive in together into God's Word. Anytime you talk about the subject of finances, you talk about the subject of uh, greed or the problem of idolatry, inevitably, I found that in my pastoral ministry, there can be three um, uh, responses that sometimes we might have that can be a barrier of sorts into actually hearing and giving ourselves over to learning what it is that the Bible might want us to know about the subject of our stewardship. And, and the first is uh, we might have the posture of apathy, where this is just something like we just don't care about it, I'm just not going to lean into it, or perhaps we have the posture of annoyance, where we're a little bit annoyed that we're going to talk about this, and we're going to roll our eyes and say, well, the only thing church cares about is money. Well, that's not true. This is in God's Word. Or perhaps we have the posture of aggravation. 
So we find ourselves just being aggravated when it comes to the subject of money and why is it that God wants to talk about our finances and why is it you know, that the church always seems to want to dig into my wallet? Well, that's not true either. But here's what I would tell you. I, I've been to the doctor before uh, for a well check and had the doctor say, uh, hey, I, I, w- I want us to talk just for a few minutes about diet. And inevitably, because uh, I know that that's an area that I probably need to work on. I can have a posture of either being annoyed or aggravated or apathetic, right? I don't want to talk about that, doc. And she's like, no, I think we really need to because it's, it's something that she knows we need to address. But I can tell from my posture that it's also something I know I need to address simply by how I respond when she tries to bring it up. And, and, so, and so I wonder if it's possible that sometimes we might have that posture when it comes to the subject of our, our finances, because deep down, we might know it too is something that we need to address, or at least be open and available to the Bible uh, uh, bearing its weight when it comes to this particular uh, uh, subject. So this is uh, definitely not chapter one of how to grow a church in ministry, talking on the subject of money. But if the Bible talks about it, we should talk about it. If it matters to God, it should matter to us. Somebody say amen. All right, we're in Luke chapter 12. We're going to start reading together in verse 13. We'll read through the parable and then we'll stop and discuss. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. If you're there, say, I got it. Nine of you are following along, okay? I do put the scriptures up on the screen behind me, but I always want to encourage you to bring uh, your copy of God's word. You can look on with your neighbor as well. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. If you're there, say, I got it. Here we go. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to them, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Some of your Bibles will translate that word as greed. All covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I think it's fascinating that as Jesus answers this interrupter's question, he immediately gives away the subject of his sermon. He immediately gives its summary right out of the gate. The last half of verse 15, Jesus says, take care. But you'll notice that when he says, take care and, and be on guard here, he's, he goes from talking specifically to that individual. And the Bible says that he said to them. So now he's going to address the crowd. Why is it that when a man asks this question individually, Jesus gives the response corporately? Well, because Jesus knows that this question is revealing a greater problem in the human heart, something that we're all going to have to learn how to navigate and to deal with on our own. And so Jesus says to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, against all greed. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I think that when Jesus answers this question, he does two things. The first is he dismisses what is assumed by this uh, individual to be a matter of importance so that he can redirect this man and subsequently all of those who are listening to him teach into what he knows really counts at the end of life. 
So Jesus dismisses what this guy thinks is important, and then he redirects him to show him what really uh, matters uh, for every person everywhere. Because in the first century, during the time in, uh, of Jesus, uh, there was already a, a rabbinical law. There was already a custom as to how a family's inheritance was to be uh, divided. So the oldest brother in a family, when uh, 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 the parents passed away, the oldest uh, a son received a double portion of the inheritance. And then however many uh, uh, boys were in the family after that, they received a single portion of the inheritance. Well, this must have been one of the younger brothers. And he's aggravated that the eldest brother is going to get a double portion. And so he responds and, and he says, Jesus, uh, tell my older brother to split his double portion. Tell my older brother he needs to share. This needs to be more equitable. And Jesus is like, man, you're missing the point. In fact, the point is by even asking this question, you're revealing that there's a greater problem within. You see, the second thing that Jesus does is not only does he dismiss this guy's question, which he thinks is of importance to point him to what really is. But, but Jesus wants to draw our attention. He does this in the second half of verse 15, that at the end of life, it, it's, it's not who has what. Now watch this. It's who has who. That's what Jesus means for us to see. At the end of life, it's not who has what, it's who has who. And then to illustrate this point of his a sermon to illustrate this point that Jesus is making, that's when he then gives the parable that we're going to read about this rich fool. That's, when Jesus, that's what parables do. Every good teacher knows that a parable is an illustration. A parable is a, a means by which you can help communicate a difficult truth or a subject that might be hard to understand. Or if you simply want to drive your point home, a good teacher will illustrate that uh, teaching, that subject matter, uh, so that the students who are learning it might best understand. And that's what Jesus does as he provides this parable and the many more that are found within our New Testament. So let's read the parable uh, together. Jesus says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, one of the ways we know that this parable of warning is so significant, so serious, is simply by the language that is found there within. The Bible is careful in its use of the word fool. If you'll read the Proverbs, it talks about the behaviors of a fool. It talks about how we ought to be guarded against engaging with a fool. The Bible is actually cautious when it comes uh, to the labeling of uh, a fool. And the fact that this man is labeled as a rich fool tells us that the seriousness of the language which is applied to him, the specifics of this uh, adjective used to describe him uh, uh, are so significant that Jesus wants the warning to carry the necessary weight so we might pay attention to the subject that he is attempting to explain. Because 
There's power when you give a personal description about someone uh, who, uh, who you're trying to best explain. So if you were, uh, maybe you don't know somebody and you're going to uh, try to, to, to talk or introduce uh, uh, them, then you might say, like I would say, uh, my wife Mary is a servant. And even if you haven't met Mary, the fact that I have assigned her the subject of servant, uh, then now all of a sudden you might have a picture that she's willing to sacrifice or she works for the good of others. If you know somebody and you would say, well, she is a jerk or he is a hothead, right? So even if we haven't met that person, just based upon the personal description, you now have an idea of how that person uh, happens to be. Well, the description for this person, this rich person is that of a, a fool. And so the Bible takes seriously this subject of stewardship. And if it matters to God, it, it should matter to us. And here's why it matters to me. Uh, I don't want to be a fool. We talked last week that sheep are dumb, right? And I do dumb stuff. But I, I don't want to be labeled as a fool. I don't want to respond or behave foolishly when it comes most specifically to the things that God has entrusted to my care. And, and I, I don't think you do either. So then I think we can learn some things that Jesus draws out for us within this parable of instruction, highlighting the big idea. Life is not about who has what. Life is about who has so here's the first thing I think Jesus means for us to see. Foolishness happens when we don't see the difference between our stewardship and God's ownership. Foolishness happens when we don't see the difference between our stewardship and God's ownership. And I'm going to show it to you in the text. Eleven times, eleven times between verses 17 and 19 of this parable, the personal pronoun I or my are used by this rich fool. They're used to describe the possessions that he has accumulated, the wealth that he has built, the produce that has come from his fields being plentiful for harvest. And he describes them in terms of I or my. He talks about them as though he owns them. But that runs in contradiction to how the Bible teaches with regards to who owns and who cares for. The clear teaching of the Bible, and I'm going to show it to you in a few places, the clear teaching of the Bible is one of God's ownership and our stewardship. That it belongs to God and it has been entrusted to us. And I'll show you a few places in the scripture, Old and New Testament, just so you'll see the full biblical theology regarding ownership and stewardship. So the first place in Psalm chapter 50, you don't have to turn there. I'll put this on the screen. But in Psalm chapter 50, the Bible records a conversation between God and the psalmist. And God is venting to the psalmist because the Bible says the people of Israel were begrudging in their giving of their tithes and their offerings to God. So they were giving to God for temple worship, but they were annoyed in having to do so. And so God has to have rolled his eyes back into his head. And then he responds like, do you think I need what it is that you have? Do you think I need your begrudging giving? And imagine that. Imagine having to be annoyed like, did you cut the tie check, honey? I didn't want to. Right? Like that's what it was like. And so God has, oh, y'all are the only ones? Okay. And so God has this conversation and here's what the Bible records in Psalm chapter 50 verses 11 and 12. It says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. 
I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Three times, two verses, God says everything, all, and all. He owns it all. Now, evidently, the people of God have been entrusted with some of it, but God owns it. Here's the other place. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uh, writes a letter to his younger brother in the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, records Paul's instruction because Timothy had some people in the church that had financial means. These were people who were successful in their business. Maybe they had great inheritance. And so Paul wants to give Timothy some good instruction so Timothy can shepherd these people in light of what God has entrusted to them. And listen to what it says, 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Listen, the stock market wasn't even a thing. And yet Paul tells Timothy to instruct people not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches because evidently markets move. Evidently things change. Evidently inflation is a thing. And so don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God. Why? He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. But for what purpose? Verse 18, they are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So again, go back to the parable of Jesus. Truly life isn't being rich. Truly life is recognizing it's not what you have, but it's who you have. It's who you have. How about uh, the last place I'll show you is uh, in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 28, this is kind of the culmination of the creation narrative. And uh, in Genesis 1, 28, God gives a charge uh, to Adam and, and to Eve re regarding the responsibility that he is entrusting to them uh, uh, in the creation. And he says this, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. That word dominion, it means responsibility. It means care. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, do you think Adam and Eve sat back and thought, this is ours? We did this. No, of course, they are a part of creation. But God has entrusted to them the responsibility over other parts of creation. Because God is the creator. He's the owner. And he has entrusted to Adam and Eve, now to you and to me, a stewardship, a responsibility for some things that are found here within it. So foolishness happens when we don't see the difference between our stewardship and God's ownership. Um, uh, have you ever, uh, in high school one time, I had uh, somebody loan me a really nice car for prom. And, uh, and some, sometimes when uh, uh, students will take dates uh, for prom or a special event like homecoming dance or something, you may uh, borrow somebody's really nice car, like it's a luxury car, it's a sports car, right? And, and, and so when, because that car has been loaned to you, then you're really careful with it, right? Like it's 10 and 2 when you're, when you're driving and you're making sure uh, not to mess anything up. And, and you're, so you're driving carefully and, and, and you're not uh, trying to get it dirty on the inside because you're really uh, appreciative of what has been loaned to you for you to enjoy for that big date. Now imagine the difference if you uh, uh, drive that thing like crazy and you're making the 
the turn on two wheels and, and you're getting in and out of it and getting it dirty and leaving your trash and your wrappers all over the car, right? It's disrespectful because you're showing a lack of appreciation for that gift that the owner has entrust, temporarily entrusted to the student who's taking it out on their date. Well, that's how it is with uh, our resources, that God is the owner, we are the stewards, that it's his car and he has just loaned it. He's given the keys to you and I to drive for just a little while here on earth. And it's disrespectful when we abuse it and act like somehow it belongs to us. Does that make sense? And, and I think Jesus is trying to draw uh, uh, our attention to, to that reality. Foolishness happens when we don't see the difference between our stewardship and God's ownership. Here's the second thing I think Jesus would want us to see. Foolishness happens when we don't see the balance in both our enjoyment and our deployment of the resources that God has entrusted to us. In both our enjoyment and our deployment of the resources that God has entrusted to us. He's entrusted because he owns and we steward. And so it happens when foolishness happens when we don't strike the balance between the enjoyment and the deployment. So I'll give you three ways I, I, I think about this. The first is don't demonize money. Like don't, like don't demonize money. Look up here at me. Money's not the problem. We are. Money's neutral, but we're sinful. This is why in the Bible, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17 and verse 9, the prophet says that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is why Solomon would write in the Proverbs, to guard your heart above all else, for from your heart flow the wellsprings of life. Well, why would you need to guard your heart above all else? Well, because your heart is sick. And so when it comes to the things like stewarding the resources that God owns and you have been entrusted with... You have to guard your heart. You have to pay attention. But we don't demonize money. Money is not the problem. People are. Money is neutral, but we are sinful. And so we enjoy the blessings that God gives us, but never at the expense of our ability to deploy them for the glory of God and the good of other people. So I would say we don't believe in poverty theology. We don't think you have to be poor in order to be pure before God, but we also don't believe in prosperity theology, that if you are pure and in a right relationship with God, you will experience great prosperity financially in your life. We believe in stewardship, both the enjoyment of the blessings God has entrusted to us and their deployment for his glory and the good of other people he surrounds us with. I believe with all of my heart, that it is possible to enjoy a family vacation and missional living. I don't think you have to do one or the other. I think God intends for us to experience both. But the question is whether or not your vacation is coming at the expense of your missional living. But we don't demonize money because money is not the problem. You and I are. Sometimes we just can't handle it. We just can't handle it. So we don't demonize our money. The same thing, second thing I would say is beyond just the demonization, we don't idolize our money. We don't idolize our money. We don't worship money. Money makes a terrible God. It makes a terrible God. Do you know why? Because it can't save you. Money can't save you. And even though money can buy a lot of things, it can buy comfort, it can buy convenience. Money can even buy people. It can buy privilege. 
It can buy power. But do you know what money cannot buy? It cannot buy the right standing of any single person into a relationship with God. And why is that? Because Jesus already bought it. Through his sacrifice on Calvary's cross, Jesus was the payment in full. It's the reason why when Jesus uh, speaks hanging on the cross, the Aramaic word that he uses to describe the finished work that he has done is tetelestai. It's an accounting term. It means it's finished. The account is settled. The debt is no more. And so money makes a terrible God. Terrible God. Uh, John D. Rockefeller was asked at one time, he was uh, known to be the richest man at Uh, in the world at that time, and he was asked, how much money is enough? And you know what his answer was? A dollar more. A dollar more. Money makes a terrible God because it cannot save. And no matter how much you think you have, whatever you're asking it to do, if that is a job reserved for God, it will fail. It will fail. So we don't demonize money. Money's not the problem. Money is to be enjoyed and deployed, and we don't idolize money. It's not something we should worship. What do we do with money? We utilize it to worship God. We utilize our money to worship God. This is, I think, what is meant by striking the balance between the enjoyment of God's blessings, which he has entrusted to you and me, and the deployment of those things for the purposes of serving him. I've heard it said before, we are a people who will either worship God with our money, or we will worship money as our God. We'll either worship God with our money, or we'll worship money as our God. And so I want to utilize what God owns, and I am expected to steward it. Remember, God owns it. We steward it. It belongs to him and trusted to us. And so I want to do so. I want to steward that in a way that brings God glory. Why? I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to be a fool. And so here's the the thing. Um, Is it possible that any of our lifestyle is such that it is uh, causing an imbalance in our ability to respond to spontaneous generosity that advances his kingdom? Are we living our lives in such a way? Are we maxing out our income and are we maxing out our resources such that it is inhibiting us from actually spontaneously responding in generosity to the thing God, things God puts before us? So I, again, I'm, I'm, not against, like, I'm not against enjoyment, neither is God, clearly. The scriptures are clear. But if you go out for a really nice dinner, and you spend a lot of money on that nice dinner, and you have a great time at that dinner, are you, and, and then when dinner is done, you see somebody in the parking lot on the way to your car after that dinner that has a financial need. Have you spent so much on dinner, you're not able to spontaneously respond and to provide the blessing that that person happens to have, right? It's not one or the other. It's striking the balance between the both, enjoyment and the deployment. And here's the last. Foolishness happens when we don't see the significance of the temporal versus what actually lasts forever, the eternal. Foolishness happens when we don't see the significance of the temporal versus what lasts forever. Um, In in today's parable, uh, the fool is uh, so content with not only uh, uh, his success, but then his business strategy which is to build bigger barns 
And uh, he's so content with that that he just says to himself, I made it. Like he just, he just relaxed. He's like, I made it. But, but the problem is Jesus says in the parable that that is temporal thinking and we're a people who have been made for eternity. And so that's short-sighted. Look again at what it says in uh, Luke 12, starting in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up, for himself, lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This temporal, short-term perspective is actually what gets this wealthy individual the label of fool. Did you know that he's, he's at the beginning of the parable, Jesus says a rich man had land that produced plentifully. So his title goes from simply being a wealthy man who has enjoyed great success to then being described as a fool. And what changed this? This misunderstanding of the temporal on the altar of that which lasts forever. That this man had a temporal perspective. He was thinking only in terms of the here and now. And we must see that the kingdom of God provides something that is eternal. That's our salvation from sin. And nothing we could accumulate or purchase in the here and the now can compare with that. There is nothing more valuable than God. There's nothing more significant. There's nothing worth more than you in a right relationship with God, being a part of his kingdom, because that's all that's going to last forever. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told two parables back to back, and he tried to highlight the value of the kingdom of God, the thing that's going to last forever. Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. So the question is, what can matter more than Jesus? Nothing. What matters more to Jesus? Nothing. Jesus uh, came to earth to bring glory to God and for the good of every person who needs salvation. And so the question then is, what will matter in a million years from now? His kingdom and his kingdom alone, right? Like in Matthew chapter 16, I have always called it the campfire conversation. Jesus has his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, and, uh, and it was just a small group of them. And so they're gathered that evening around the fire. They've probably had dinner. They're getting ready for bed. And Jesus asked this question, um, who do people say that I am? And so there's a variety of answers. Some say you're uh, uh, Elijah. Others say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're a prophet. And Jesus is like, yeah, but I need to know who do you say that I am. I mean, it gets personal. Like he's eye to eye now. And then Peter, who's bold, he stands up and he says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. The son of the living God. You're the one who's come to save. 
And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That was his Hebrew name. So he like called him by his full name. He's like, blessed are you, Connor Ross Bales. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, and upon this confession that I'm Christ, upon this confession that I have come to save, I'm going to build my church and nothing, not even the gates of hell, are going to prevail against it. And so let me just help you. In a million years from now, what we wear will not matter. In a million years from now, what we drive will not matter. But again, I'm not demonizing those things because the Bible doesn't. Money's neutral, people aren't. But in a million years from now, where we live will not matter. In a million years from now, what we have will not matter. But do you know what will? The people sitting around you, the people living around you, the people God has entrusted to you, they will matter in a million years because it's nothing but the kingdom of God that is going to stand. And so the question is, when it comes to what God owns and we have been asked to steward, when it comes to what belongs to him and has been entrusted to us, are we living our lives in such a way that we are sowing into what will matter in a million years from now? You with me? Because in my pastoral ministry, I have officiated a lot of funerals. And I've been called to the bedside of dying people uh, quite a few times. And I've gone to the hospital in those last few moments of life. And I've never once had somebody, when I pulled the chair up next to their bed, I've never once had somebody lean over and say, Pastor, would you ask him to pull my sports car up to the front of the hospital so I can see it one last time? I've never once had somebody say, Pastor, would you stop by the house and get the statement from my 401k just so I can see what we got? Pastor, would, would you do me a favor and just bring me a couple of pics of our home or our, our lake home or, or our last vacation? Because I just want to see how good things really are. No one says that. Do you know what matters in that moment? The people that are gathered around that bed. Not the places, not the prosperity, not the stuff. It's the people. Because in a million years, that's the only thing that's going to last. The kingdom of God and those who have been invited in. And so I always want to be as helpful as I can anytime we're talking about God's word. So I'm going to ask you three questions. They're really easy questions, but I hope as you wrestle with what the word has said, and, and by the way, I happen to know firsthand how difficult this subject is uh, uh, for you to hear, but I, I would just ask you to think about how difficult it is for somebody to preach. Nobody, nobody likes to talk about this subject, but it's in God's word. I, I wish I, had, I could take my iPhone and, uh, and do the, the panorama, pan, panorama thing. Uh, so, so you could see your faces. Like some of you had your arms folded all day. I had a lady come up to me after 8.30. She said, I was just cold. I'm like, calm down, okay? <laughs> but is it possible? Is it possible that the reason why it's difficult to hear is because deep down it's, it's something we know we need to, where we need to grow. Is it possible? So, so so the first question is this, when it comes to your possessions, 
when it comes to your resources, and I would even say when it comes to your gifting. So your giftings could be the things that God has blessed you with. Maybe that's even including an inheritance that you have been given, or it could be your spiritual gifts, like the talents that God has endowed upon you. So when it comes to your resources, when it comes to your finances, and when it comes to your gifts, who do you believe owns them? Who, that's the first question. Everything starts there. Who do you believe owns it? The second question is this. How do you believe God has asked you to steward it? How, how do you believe that God has asked you to steward it? And here's the last question, really easy. Is what you're doing with it going to matter in a million years from now? You with me? Is what, is what you're doing with it going to matter in a million years from now? You see, because what we can't miss in this parable is the moment that comes at the very end of it. This guy's thinking in the short term. But what he realizes is that he's given his life over to banking and to building bigger barns. And he's, it's, it's come at the expense of actually having a right relationship with God. He's giving himself over completely to things that are going to be experienced and they're going to be enjoyed in the here and the now, but it's come at the expense of what's going to matter forever. And some of you are are great financial success. God has blessed you. You have a very sharp mind. Your business has carved out a beautiful niche. You've been a a value to your company, to your organization. You've worked your way. And and everybody, by the world standards, every person who is in this room and watching in the room next door, every one of us is rich by the world standards. And so some of us have, have just sewn in so much into what is in the here and the now, and it has come at the expense of our soul, which was made to last forever. And what if, look at me, what if you die today? What if you die today? And you have to stand before God, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? Are you gonna say, but have you seen my 401k? Have you seen what I drive? Have you seen where we live? Or are you going to say, because you shouldn't, but because I've trusted in your son who lived a life I couldn't live and died the death that I deserve, and I've placed my faith fully and completely into him, then it's only by his shed blood that I have right relationship with you. And the only reason you should let me in is because Jesus paid so that I could, so that I could get in. And in light of that, I want to steward everything that he's entrusted to me because I want to be about the business of my father. So I hope that you're going to think through these questions. I hope that you're going to wrestle with the text and what it is that God's word says. And if you want to have a conversation with somebody about what it looks like to A, be in right relationship with God or to be steward what it is that God has entrusted to you, then in just a moment when we're dismissed, then I would love to meet with you at Guest Central right in the back of the room. would love to talk to you uh, about uh, maybe how you could connect with us here at our church. I, I would even say if, if you're here and, and, 
and you're curious about membership at Prestonwood, uh, we would love to talk to you ab- about that. Or, or maybe God has already done a good work in your life, but you need to be baptized. Baptism is the outward expression of that significant inward change. Then just let us know because uh, we would love to, to celebrate that. Uh, um, with you. Today, at the close of this service, we're not going to have a formal come forward invitation. Um, I just want you to leave today uh, thinking about what God's word says, and then maybe wrestling with, is is there something, God, you would want me to change? Um, Because I I, I know this, I don't want to be a fool. And I don't think you do either. And and so I hope that... uh, Uh, that God will grow us in what it looks like to avoid foolishness with the things he owns that he's asked you and I to care for. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you so much for this day. And uh, thank you for your love and your grace, God. And uh, thank you for uh, your word. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Father, as we go today, I pray that we would be mindful of everything that you have asked of us. We love you and we trust you. We acknowledge we cannot do this without you. So we pray to you in Jesus' good name. Amen.